Let's pray. Father, we have anticipated this moment uh, last week, every day, thinking about this joyous privilege of celebrating the body and the blood of Christ over the Lord's Supper with the church, knowing that one day we will celebrate it with you, Jesus, in the city of God. But today, we celebrate it by the power of the Holy Spirit, that umbilical cord of hope that connects earth and heaven. So thank you, O Holy Spirit, that you are sitting beside every person on every chair ready to offer hope, forgiveness, redemption for those who would say yes to Christ. Oh, and what a joy it is for us to applaud the decision of the triune God to enter into history and offer the perfect body of Jesus for our redemption and forgiveness. That is the great need of the world. It's the great need of my soul to be clean again. And I thank you for my cleansing. Now, Lord, I pray for those who've not yet believed and not yet received Christ. Would this simple message be used by you, O sovereign God, to bring them into your family, to be my brother and sister all over this city? county, state, nation, across the oceans, Lord, to Europe, to Central Asia, to the Far East, and all islands in between, cities, suburbs, neighborhoods, slums, deserts. Father, would you cause many to believe today that Jesus is the Redeemer of the world. It's in his name I pray. Amen. Ephesians 1, 7, and 8, in Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that He lavished on us. Up to this point in our study of the book of Ephesians, we've looked at God's decisions to act in history past, or actually before history began, making a choice before the beginning of the world in regard to what he would do in our lives to secure our salvation. But here we move through this massive long sentence in Ephesians 1 of God stepping into history at a point in time in order to make his promise good through the gift of Jesus Christ, particular purpose to provide a solution for the removal of our guilt. You ask people in the world today, why do you think Jesus came? Many will say because he, was, he came to teach us great uh, a, a moral code, uh, wise teachings. Some will even give him credit to, uh, as a great miracle worker. But Ephesians 1, 7 and 8 remind us the greatest need of the world is to be forgiven of our sins. Richard Phillips says, greatest need is not therapy, though it's good, not stress management, though it's good, not social reform, but salvation from sins is the greatest need of the world, what we're celebrating today. Last week, we brought up a term called irresistible grace. How does God do it? When we are running from Him, what does He do to cause us to be drawn to Him irresistibly? And today, we're looking at that answer. He proves His love through the sacrifice of the shed 
blood of Jesus Christ. Two big words that he introduces to us to show us how much he loves us. He redeems us and he forgives us. Ephesians 1.7, in him we have redemption through his blood. Redemption, New Testament use here, but really it was part of the Old Testament economy that kept someone, pulled someone out of a hopelessly financial point of destitution. It's mentioned in Leviticus 25, 25, if one of your fellow Israelites becomes poor and sells some of their property, their nearest relative is to come and redeem, same word just used in Hebrew language, redeem what they have sold. You can imagine you being a man in uh, Israel, Palestine in uh, 2000 B.C., You've had three years of drought. You can't feed your family. Someone comes to you and says, we have crops stored in our barn, and I will keep your family from starving to death if you will just give me your land. Been in your family for 500 years, but your family, your children, starving. You give up your land. Well, when economics, uh, you know, and the drought is over and the and nature blesses again with rain, you would love to farm again, but you can't because you gave away your land. Sometimes your poverty is so great, you want your family to be able to stay on the land, so you give away yourself. You, as a man, you sell yourself into slavery, working on somebody else's property, your family stays on their property, and the food that you earn on their property will then go to feed your family. But again, the situation is irreversible. It is hopeless. You have lost your land or you have lost your self. And so Leviticus 25, 25 was the solution for that. It was the obligation of a family member if they saw that you had sold your land or sold yourself And they had financial means. As a family member, they were obligated by law to come in and redeem you. Whatever money the person wanted for the land that you had given away or your body that you had given away, your redeemer, family member, in the Hebrew, the word goel, your goel, redeemer, would come and pay and reverse the hopelessness by making payment that you could not make. So when you think about redemption, think about a situation that's hopeless, giving away something that you cannot get back. Hebrews 1.7 says Jesus is our goel. He is our kinsman, redeemer. In him we have redemption through his blood. Now follow the logic of the New Testament, how Jesus redeems us. John 8, 34, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. So when we choose to sin, what do we do? We give away our land. We give away our, our, our land of purity. We give away our heart of righteousness. and we, we give it away. And so once we were righteous and we give it away, and it's gone. Our righteousness, our purity, our clean conscience is gone, irreversible is that choice that we've made. Satan comes along and says, your soul is starving for entertainment, satisfaction. You are starving. Satan says, come work for me. 
give yourself to me, sell yourself to me, become my servant, and I will feed your soul pleasure. So you say, okay, I'm starving, I'll do it. And now you belong to him. So now you have two situations that are problematic. You've given away your righteousness, and now you've given yourself into the hands or the slavery of Satan. And Jesus comes along and purchases us back through the gift of his blood. Now, it's very interesting that Paul says in him, we could have stopped right there, but he qualifies it. In him, we have redemption. He said, good, Jesus bought me back. But he wants to make sure that you understand this is different than any other redemption that's ever taken place. Because God in the Old Testament is called Israel's Redeemer. But God did not redeem Israel with blood. Look, what, look how God redeemed his people in the Old Testament. Exodus 6, 6, God says, tell the, Moses, tell the people this. Therefore say to the Israelites, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the slavery. They were enslaved of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them. And I will redeem you. With what? Power. Those ten massive natural disasters we call the plagues. I will redeem you with power. And then all of a sudden, the Apostle Paul comes up and says, no, 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 no. When God redeemed you from your captivity to Satan, after you gave away your land of righteousness, God did redeem you, not with power, not even with his wisdom, he redeemed you with the blood of his son. So the New Testament, not written in Hebrew. The New Testament, uh, written in Greek. So you, you, you find a Hebrew word in the Old Testament, and the Greek writers have to find the equivalent. And so the word redemption in the New Testament comes from the root word of lutron, which means a ransom payment. But what's so cool about lutron, if you look at how it's used in Greek literature, it means to release. And so you say, well, does it mean payment or does it mean to release? Well, lutron is a payment given to somebody so they will release you from the chains of slavery. So lutron does mean to loosen to set free, but only because payment has been made. Jesus said he came to provide that lutron. Mark 10, 45, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a lutron, a ransom, a payment for many. Really can't get enough of these verses. Hebrews 9, 12 Jesus entered heaven, the most holy place once for all, by his own power, nope, wisdom, nope, by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal freedom, redemption, loosening. You're free to go to heaven because payment has been made. The price to end our slavery was the blood of Christ, and this is the law of God. Um, Hebrews 10.4 says that 
animal blood cannot free us from human guilt because you know all the Old Testament. It was just one animal sacrifice after another, and then you get to the New Testament, and we are told that all of that animal blood that was spilled in the New Testament was not a suitable lutron, was not a suitable payment. It had no power to really free us from our guilt. People often say, well, the Lord should just wave his hand. He should just utter a command and say, I forgive everybody of everything. That's what they say. If God's loving, he should just forgive. And in the same sentence, they're also saying, and God should just forget about his justice. Because his law in the Old Testament said, sin can only be forgiven with the shedding of blood. It has to be payment. So when Jesus Christ sent Christ to die and shed his blood, God was keeping his, his promise about his threats in the Old Testament. Blood is the only payment for the release of our, our guilt. So the only way that sin can be punished and the sinner go free, how about that? And the only way that sin can be punished and the sinner go free is if another person steps in, Jesus Christ is our kinsman, redeemer, our Goel. Love of God is much more. To, listen, his love, God, people say if God were loving, he would just wave his hand or speak a word. How about this? How much greater do we see the love of God that he didn't wave his hand and he didn't speak a word to issue our forgiveness, but he sent Christ to shed his blood? How much more do you see the love of God in that? It would be unloving to speak, unloving to wave his hand, very loving, infinitely loving to send Christ to die and satisfy his Old Testament laws. Our redemption costs God more than it cost him to make all the worlds. Our redemption costs God more than to manage all of the empires of his providence. It cost him the life and death of his son. It's very important that you know this. When you realize you've been redeemed by the blood of Christ, that will set you on the road to your hatred of your sin. When you kneel beneath the cross of Calvary and you hear the cries of anguish of the Son of God and you realize that your choice to sin killed your friend on the cross, killed your Redeemer, you will begin to hate sin. So understanding redemption is what frees us more and more from the power of sin. Now let's continue with the second gift that Paul was rejoicing in, Ephesians 1, 7 and 8. In him we have redemption through his blood, not just redemption, but the forgiveness of sins. The word forgiveness would uh, mean to remit, uh, to, to cancel a debt, or to not inflict injury when you have the right to inflict injury. You have legal, you have legal recourse, you could and you don't. I am canceling that debt against you is what the word forgiveness means. Uh, the word sin in verse 7 
It's a word that's most often in the New Testament translated uh, to trespass or breach of contract, didn't keep our word. So when you don't keep your word in a contract, somebody has legal right to come against you. You trespass on somebody's property, they have the legal right to come against you. So we, we broke the contract, we trespassed where we shouldn't have walked. God has the right to come against us, and yet he says, I'm offering forgiveness. I'm not coming after you. You think about it in an economic terms. Let's say you're walking with a friend on a pier, and all of a sudden you realize to the horror of your imagination that it's been over an hour since you've posted a selfie on Facebook. And here you are on this pier, and you realize that everybody in the world wants to know what you're doing on Saturday morning. They'll, they will, they'll not make it through their day if they don't get an update from you about your daily schedule. That's how much the world wants to know about you. So you add, but you don't have your phone, and now you're, you're just terrified. I don't have my phone. How am I going to post a selfie and update the world? So you ask to borrow your friend's cell phone for your selfie, and right when you're about to take the picture, you drop it, and it falls in the ocean. Oops. So at this point, you have one or two things. Either you are paying for the new phone, or they are paying for the new phone. But if your friend says to you, or if I say to you, you borrow my phone, and I say to you, don't worry about it. That's a nonsensical statement because it needs to be followed out. Don't worry about it because I'm going to worry about it. But the phone has to be replaced. The price has to be paid. It's just not a non-event. Either your friend pays or you pay. So God says when we sin against him, the cost of the damage of breaching the contract we have with the Lord to obey Him, the trespassing on property that was unholy, going where we should not have gone, that penalty must be borne by someone. God just, He doesn't say, just like with the example of the pier, you can't say, just forget about it. Payment has to be made by you or God. And God says, I will make the payment that you owe me. So when you think about sin, how glorious it is to think what God has done. When we sin against God, we injure Him twice. First, we trespass and we break His laws and we travel where He says don't travel. Wounds His heart. Then, instead of Him inflicting injury on us, as he has the right to do, he says, what you owe me, I will pay to resolve this legal issue. And he pays with the blood of his own son. I forgive you. I will pay. And remember, we're not talking about a lost cell phone, $500, $600. We're talking about the price of your redemption was the blood of of Christ. And look at the attitude by which God gives this forgiveness at the end. In accordance with the riches of His grace, 
that he lavished on us. God forgives you because he is rich in grace. When you think about the universe, you just think about from one side of the universe to the other. Right in the center is a throne of grace and the entire universe is filled with the grace of God. Because he's rich in grace. He's not like a millionaire or a billionaire who satisfies his conscience by handing out $10 and $20 bills to poor people. God is extravagant in his giving of grace. He lavishes it on you. He heaps it on you. He doesn't reluctantly forgive you. He pours and pours and pours forgiveness on you according to the riches of his, riches of his kindness. God doesn't come to you and say, okay, okay, now here's $1,000 worth of grace. When it's used up, we're done here. You use up the $1,000 worth of grace, and you come and you, 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 you just break your heart again that you fail into that sin again. You break God's heart again, and God says, I forgive you again. I forgive you again. My grace fills all of the universe. So keep repenting. Keep confessing. Keep leaning toward the cross because you cannot exhaust my grace. I will forgive you as many times as you ask to be forgiven. Many of us are like a very poor man living without hope, not realizing that just another state away, somebody has purchased a beautiful home for us. And there we are living on the streets when we could be living in the comfort of the new house. So right beyond the next prayer of your life, over there, over yonder, is a universe full of the forgiveness of God. And it's available for you because God is rich in grace. God wants you to bask in the rich of his grace and not live in a giant landfill of guilt. When you were unforgiven, your conscience would not stop testifying against you, and hallelujah for that. It's a gift of God, that conscience. Because we will never seek healing until we're wounded, and we'll never desire new clothes until we hate what we're wearing, our filthy, unholy rags. But the moment we despair of our condition, Christ takes away our sin. And just like Isaiah says, those sins in that moment of confession vanish like the morning mist. Isaiah 44, 22, I have swept away your offenses like a cloud. Your sins like the morning mist return to me, for I have redeemed you. Like somebody would come on a giant whiteboard with a sponge or a cloth and with one sweep of their hand, everything that was written on the board is now gone is what forgiveness looked like. I forgive you. Swept it away. Charles Spurgeon says the reality of our sins being erased is what lifts our hearts into the very suburbs of heaven. No greater joy than to hear the God say, I forgive you. I hope today, I hope today with all of my heart as we're about to celebrate the Lord's Supper 
that you have tasted the forgiveness of God. That you have stood at the bar of the judge where he could say, I condemn you, and yet you've heard him say, as he looks over at the blood of Christ, the wounded, scarred hands of Jesus Christ, and God does not say, I condemn you. He says, I forgive you, as David the psalmist says, blessed is he whose transgressions are forgiven. No condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. There is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. I'd like to ask the band, men, come forward. Let's celebrate the passing out of the bread. Let's pray as they come forward. Father, thank you for our redemption. Thank you, Jesus, for being our Goel, our Redeemer, kinsman Redeemer. Thank you, God, for not condemning our sin, but remitting it, canceling the debt. I thank you for the chance of applauding you, worshiping you, enjoying you, by feasting on pleasures that never go away, feasting on the love of Jesus Christ as represented in his broken body for sinners. Oh God, thank you for your church gathered today to celebrate the sinless, suffering, risen, victorious, triumphant, ever interceding, soon returning body of Jesus Christ. It's in his name I pray. Amen.
Christ the Lord upon the tree In the stead of ruined sins Hangs the land of victory See the price of our redemption See the Father's plan unfold Bringing many sons to glory If you believe the uh, bread symbolizing the Lord's Supper is a representation of the, of the gift of God, of Jesus Christ becoming our Goel, our kinsman redeemer, providing his body as the Lutron, the payment by which God paid himself the debt that we owed him. If you believe that his sacrifice on the cross brought us forgiveness, the release from the judgment of God, would you take an eat and remember of the body of Christ? Omar, would you please come, brother, and lead us in prayer of the great gift of the body of Christ? Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your body, for your broken, bloody, beautiful body, Lord. You chose to sacrifice it all for us. What grace, what love, what mercy. How can we ever repay you, Lord? May our words ring true in your ears, Lord. Because there's not much that we can say, Lord. We just say thank you. 
Abba, Father, our King, our Lord, our Savior. I pray that as we eat this bread, Lord, we don't just think about it as food, but as your broken body, Lord, that was laid down for us, every man, woman, and child, young or old, we all need you, Lord. May tears drop from our eyes because of what was done, but a rejoice, a beautiful sound come from our mouth because of what you've done. We love you. This church loves you, Lord, and we thank you. May we walk throughout this day remembering that it was you and only you, none before you and none after you. Our Lord, our beautiful Savior, Jesus, Jesus, in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. I um, always feel inadequate to, to convey what I know is in the text and what it's done in my heart, but sometimes just getting it to come out, I just wish I could not do this preaching thing and just have you in my office and just talk and just so you could get more honest and I could get more honest. Because if, if you just could know how ready he is today to forgive you of everything, it's the greatest relief in the world. It is the greatest joy in the world. Two weeks ago, I went to a conference in Greenville, and I listened to testimony after testimony after testimony of people who had spent the majority of their life struggling with same-sex attraction and had fallen all the way in to all sorts of promiscuity uh, and homosexuality and one testimony after another of how God had, they had met Jesus Christ and they were celebrating the joy of their forgiveness. And I was so thrilled for them. I, I could have listened all day and I remember the last man that shared that he had grown up feeling different, feeling like he couldn't make the right feelings in his heart occur. And there, therefore, when he's like 19 and had opportunity to be away from his parents and to start moving to city life, he began to give in to those immoral feelings and enter into one relationship after another with, with other men. And then by God's grace, somebody invited him to church. And he got involved with a group of men that were radically gutsy, honest every week in the sharing of the sins they struggled with, which obviously is the missing element in, in the church. And which is why we don't do as well as we wish because people think that we're different than them. And all of a sudden, he started to see all of these men deal with different things, not like my stuff. But all of a sudden, he began to see, I think God can forgive anything. He started believing that. Then they invited him to a promise keeper's rally. Men, men, men. And he said, I'm at a promise keeper's rally. And I'm in my small group at night, and we're all doing the man thing. Men are going to take over the world, men, men are everything. Like, 
and I'm going to share with a group of men a deal with pornography and homosexuality. He said, and here I go. Out of my mouth. Shared it. He said, as soon as his speech was over, big old dude in the group, leader of the group, came over and said, brother, only one thing left to do at this point. As, let me give you a big old bear hug. He hugged him. And he said, you, need, you do know that Jesus Christ has forgiven you, don't you? He said, we of course do, but that's not important. He said, as nearly as important, you do know you're forgiven. And he was set free and went on to become discipled in that church and went on to serve as 12 years as executive pastor at that church. I hope you will have the guts to be honest and the guts to, be, to believe when the Bible says in him we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins, he means it. Every sin is forgiven through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And when you begin to believe that, it changes everything. You become like that woman that we see in the Gospels who was so overwhelmed with the fact that Jesus would accept her after her own life of promiscuity that she washed his feet with tears and dried his feet with her hair out of the joy of forgiveness. Have you ever embraced the feet of Jesus with your tears, washed his feet with your weeping out of joy, not guilt, not fear, joy, you can today. And what makes me so excited is that woman in the Gospels that we love, wrapping her arms around Jesus' feet, forgiven of her life. She is in heaven today because Hebrews 9.12, the verse I read earlier, said that when Jesus entered the most holy place, he did so to secure for us and, not, not redemption, did you remember Hebrews 9.12? And eternal redemption. Never to be taken away from you, no matter what you bring to him. I said that in a certain way a few Sundays ago, and Dean said we can say it better if we'll put some images to it. Let's share that, and then we will participate in the blood of Christ. If you find yourself doubting God's love because you have failed Him in some way, your greatest need is to remember that your salvation does not rest with your grip on God, but rather with His grip on you. Listen to the eternal hope of Ephesians 1, 4, and 5. For He chose us in Him before the creation of the world. In love, he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ. On those days when your faith wavers, when you choose compromise over loyalty, does your unreliability turn God away? When you stumble on the path of obedience and spiritual forces overwhelm you in the battle, how can you know that your Heavenly Father is still here for you? Through the promise of Ephesians 1, God responds, I chose you. You are mine. 
I have loved you before I created the world. There was a time when nothing existed but me. And that is when I chose you. Before you existed. Before you did anything right or many things wrong. I loved you. I loved you then. I love you now. And I will love you when history is over. I will love you forever.